whether you know it's the end or not, whether the artist is consciously aware of it. God, this is going to sound so woo-woo, but I don't have another way to put it. But there is something about being an artist and being a poet that means being profoundly sensitive to sort of the ups and downs and the fortunes of your own life in a wider sphere than just being able to describe it. And, you know, that's why we work in metaphor and representation and find ways to sort of mine the subconscious in ways that simple one-to-one apples-to-apples representation can't or symbolism can't. And so Mayakovsky obviously knew that there had been a problem, an increasing bureaucratization in the Soviet Union for a long time, but something was turning that was not going to be able to turn back. And I think he saw that too in his own life. Welcome to The Pointless Century, where we discuss literature, politics, and culture in an attempt to figure out what modernism was, what the 20th century meant, and whether they even mattered. thinking about what exactly Mayakovsky means by Bourgui, whether audiences and artists can tell the end is near, why we're feeling all meeting down, and as always, communism. Welcome to The Pointless Century. I'm your host, Frank Fucile. As of now, still award-winning visiting assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. I prefer he-him pronouns, and you can check out my writing on places like Interdisciplinary Studies in Literature and Environment, Bright Lights Film Journal. You can find my poetry in the Locust Review most recently. I'm here with our special guest, Alexander Billet. I'm a writer, artist, musician. I sort of, when it comes to my writing, I try to do a little bit of everything, but mostly I'm known for writing nonfiction. Most recently, I've been in the uh, Los Angeles Review of Books, talking about the work of Mark Fisher, Salvage, talking about the different radical and left-wing movements in Los Angeles, where I live. And I show up pretty frequently in Jacobin, talking about music and politics. So yeah, that's kind of what I do. And I'm also on the editorial collective of Locus Review. Of course. And we're here with our esteemed research assistants. Anna Wendorf, she, her, doing a lot now with my academic program in four separate departments now. Besides that, I just do painting because I really like it, published in Noda. But yeah, that's about it for me. Rachel Homily, she, hers. I'm majoring in secondary broadfield social studies education with concentrations in history and political science. And I am almost done with my equity, diversity, and inclusion certificates. We'll be talking today yet again about Vladimir Mayakovsky, the greatest poet of the early Soviet era. Today, we've got a list of poems to talk about. What we neglected to discuss last time around was all meeting doubt, sometimes known as in re conferences, the conversation with a tax collector about poetry, 
and my Soviet passport. And then the epics, 150 million, Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, the flying proletarian, and at the top of my voice with past one o'clock as the sort of epilogue to that unfinished poem about the five-year plan. We also want to talk about To Sergei Yeseninin, which is sort of Mayakovsky's farewell poem to a fellow poet who had committed suicide. And he wrote that about four years before committing suicide himself. Of course, this is a story not only about Russia, but about the Soviet Union. So it has a dark, dark ending with our hero putting on a clean white shirt and blowing his brains out with a pistol. That said, let's start in happier, more optimistic times. And specifically in 1920, when Mayakovsky writes what I would consider his first great epic, his first really great epic poem. And as readers of the Locust Review will obviously know my personal favorite, 150 million So this is not quite at the end of the Civil War, but projecting ahead to the end of it and imagining a future confrontation with the United States of America, with the powers of capitalism, and sort of making this myth of the 150 million Soviet citizens who will fight in this ultimate battle against uh, the powers of capitalism embodied in the figure of uh, one Woodrow Wilson. It's a really wild poem. And I think it demands, in my mind, to be understood in a sort of pair with the flying proletarian of 1925 in this notion of future warfare, in this notion of the end of warfare, in this notion of, if you will, like a communist idea of the end of history. Well, in some ways, I think it's yeah. more the, the communist idea of the beginning of history. What's the South Park episode where they're playing World of Warcraft and they spend the whole time trying to beat the unbeatable player and they finally beat him. And now they say, well, what do we do now? And Cartman just says, what do you mean? What do we do now? Now we play the game. Now we play the game. <laughs> yeah. Like, it kind of feels like this mass epic. We've thrown ourselves into this. Oh, now the real work starts. Now the real work starts of actually like building communism. Beta testing is over. Yeah, yeah. Beta testing is over. And now we can move on to building a society in which everyone is able to reach their full potential. Of course, they don't actually get to that. As we know, the Soviet Union becomes the full state capitalist dystopia that we have known it to be, which, of course, you know, one of the reasons that Mayakovsky ends it like he does later on. Well, I guess that's a good question. And I kind of hate to jump forward to the end here. But do you think that disillusion with communism is a major part of his suicide? Or do you think that it's his own personal problems, which were so obvious the whole way through? That's a really good question. I think maybe all of the above. I would imagine that living in a society which had such high hopes, a new system that had taken such a sour turn, probably exacerbated so many of his personal problems too. Even if his personal life wasn't going great, he could at least point to something political going great, but then that became impossible too. Mm -hmm. Hope sort of forecloses itself in his life at a certain point, in just about every avenue, just about every doorway. So I wouldn't know for sure, but I'd imagine is it his personal life? Was it his political life? Like all of the above and probably the two fed into each other. And some people have even claimed that he was murdered, but I find that unlikely. I feel like if the government wanted to take him out, they would have taken him out. They would have not Mm -hmm. apologized for it nor tried to hide it. There was a long-winded story about somebody who Mayakovsky had beef with in the Left Collective, and he eventually, around this same era, well, a little bit later, I guess, was 
was arrested by the NKVD and threw himself out a window. That would be sort of the the example of the type of thing that we would be talking about here. I mean, he very well might have thrown himself out a window or the thugs might have just been wrestling with him and thrown him out of a window. But Mm -hmm. I doubt that anyone planned it that way. It seems like when they planned things, they planned things. They wanted you to know that they were coming for you and killing you. They didn't want it to be ambiguous. And this was always one of Lenin's things. And then obviously Stalin, you know, took it (laughs) even further. But Lenin's point was basically that bourgeois liberalism, capitalism always is making excuses, is always trying to explain what it does, is always trying to justify what it does. And Lenin's point is basically, you know, we don't need to do that. We're not bourgeois. We'll tell you what we believe and what we don't believe. If you're an enemy, you're an enemy. And we will make no excuses for our terror because our terror will be justified. Mm-hmm. And again, I hate to be the guy who says, well, you got to hand it to the communists. <laughs> <laughs> There's a bit that Joe Kasabian on Lions Led by Donkeys does, and I'm sure that he's riffing on things that other online leftist dudes where he says, you do not indeed have to hand it to the Nazis. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> he'll, yeah, he'll, yeah. Say, he'll say that. And he, he says that of the Soviets as well. But, you know, in this early era, and I'm sorry if it offends anyone to say so, but in this early era, I do think that there are elements of what the Bolsheviks do that where you do basically have to say, well, actually, it may not have been the right thing to do, but they did have their heart in the right place Oh yeah, much sure. of the I, time. Like I think that we said this before in previous episodes, and it probably bears repeating here. The Bolsheviks, increasingly, certainly by the end of the Civil War, were just faced with a series of choices where none of them were the good choice. Um, and it was especially after the attempted assassination of Lenin, where they really locked down and they say, "Okay, well, we're going to do the terror thing. We're going to do a version of the French revolutionary they terror." Gave in, they gave into their own paranoia far too much at that point. I think that the banning of other parties, I mean, you know, you want to ban other bourgeois parties. I think that's one thing, but you're banning other socialist parties. You're banning the left socialist revolutionaries and things like that. I know I'm not alone in thinking this, that it's possible to be supportive of the Bolsheviks while also saying that they made some mistakes that just absolutely sealed their own fate later on. And I mean, maybe. Yeah, so. I mean, we're going to get into tankydom, like a real tanky debate about history instead of talking about literature. I mean, I yeah. think that the counter argument to that is that the revolution survived. But the question is how. Um, in what form? Yeah, yeah in what sure. form? In, yeah. Basically, it ends up relying on Lenin himself, because once Lenin is gone, then I think that everybody, except for the true hardcore tankies, are going to say that it changes to something else under Stalin. Hey, this is Frank and Post. I want to note here that this episode was recorded about six months ago, if I'm remembering correctly. And given our long production process, I suppose it shouldn't surprise us that there have been geopolitical events that have changed the circumstances of this discussion. Notably, the escalation of the war in Ukraine going on since... 2014, which has now been intensified by Russia's full-scale invasion of the country. This seems relevant, uh, not just geographically, but because in a trans-historical sense, I suppose this is the third reconstitution of some form of the Russian Empire, or at least the attempt at it. 
and in some of our opening considerations of Mayakovsky's poetry and talking about the Russian Civil War, we do consider briefly that reconstitution of the Russian Empire as the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, something that claimed to be anti-nationalist, something that claimed to be greater than an empire or better than an empire, but ultimately ended up being very much in the tradition of Russian imperialism. And we will in some way continue to consider this period of time and this problematic attempt to configure the national borders of Central and Eastern Europe in our upcoming episode on Red Cavalry, which does deal with not exactly the part of the world that Russia is currently invading, but a little further to the west in the area now on the border between what's now Ukraine and Poland. But nonetheless, the question of what is the Russian Empire, how might one define the polities of Poland, of Ukraine, of the peoples of the Black Sea, those issues have not been settled, and ultimately they can't be settled because ethnicity is, of course, a social construct. A social construct with teeth that always in itself contains the nightmarish possibility of violence and bloodshed. At any rate, our hearts go out to the people of Ukraine who obviously didn't ask for a war, and all the hapless conscript soldiers who obviously didn't ask to fight it either. It doesn't look like there's going to be much luck to securing a ceasefire by the time this episode is released, but uh, with hope talks will continue and maybe at least the intensive fighting will stop. So please, as you listen to our considerations of Ivan and the 150 million, don't by any means think that we stand a Ruski behemoth marching down through the Black Sea to conquer the world. But about the 150 million. About the 150 million. Yeah. It's one of my favorite poems, period, like to the extent to which that I ended up aping it for a section of the poem that I'm working on. And I say a section because I'm two and a half years now into the process of writing a book length poem that is, I don't know what it's doing now. It was supposed to cover 20 years of my life and sort of political history in the United States as well. But then the pandemic started and now it's like, I don't know how, what I'm going to do for the last year of it because the last year is going to have to pack in twice as much stuff as everything else. But the short end of that is that in writing these very long poems, I didn't find myself looking to examples like Whitman. I mean, I guess everybody looks to Whitman because maybe you're looking to, again, you know, if you're an American, you're looking to Whitman, even if you're not thinking of it. I wasn't looking at examples like Ammons. I had read a little Tommy Pico, who is probably the best known current writer of book length poems in the United States. But I did find a lot of inspiration in Mayakovsky and particularly these super long epic poems. And when he wrote 150 million, he said he didn't want to take credit for it at all. If you remember the beginning of it, it says 150 million is the author of this poem. Yeah, the, the translation he's, I have is the name of a craftsman 
Yeah, there you color. go. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. He says craftsman. This, yeah. this gets into what we talked about before about the tension between manual labor, specifically the way that Marxists and communists talk about it, and what is the necessity of art? Is art and or poetry a job? Is it a work in that yeah. utilitarian way? Like, well, what do you say um, when the taxman comes around? We'll get to that too. Yeah, so he writes it and he publishes it anonymously. His dream is that other people are going to come in and write other sections of it, that it will become a collective poem. But first off, everybody knows that it's him because he writes in this way where everybody's like, oh, that's got to be Mayakovsky. He manages, though, to put himself in a situation where he's not talking about his sex life. That was like, that <laughs> was like, that was the hurdle he had to clear, to like pretend like <laughs> yeah. he was writing an anonymous poem. And so then he goes on, I guess, I don't know, what would you call it? He goes on tour, kind of. In the Soviet era, you'd publish a book, but you'd also frequently publish in newspapers. And newspapers did this whole sort of wheat paste thing back there where they'd paste the newspaper to walls outside so that people could just stand and read them instead of buying a newspaper. Then he'd go on tour and he'd literally read at factories and stuff like that. So he goes out and, you know, everybody knows that it's him. So he's like, okay, well, I'm going to read this poem. He goes, he's, he reads this poem to the factory workers and he's in public places, whatever. He bombs everywhere. Like nobody likes this poem. It's really demoralizing for him. What are your thoughts on it, Anna, Rachel? I'm trying to think of something genuinely interesting to say about this poem. And I can't think of anything, so... Did you think it was an uninteresting poem, Anna, or? Mm, I mean, let's just say that I had different favorites out of the ones that we've picked. Mm. Okay. So you're saying that this sort of attempts to do a similar thing to the flying proletarian. Yeah. I think the flying proletarian is a more successful version of this. Wow. Wow. Okay. Let's, so let's, let's poke that. Why do you think the flying proletarian does a better job? I think it has a tighter narrative. This is actually a debate that I know people have had about Eisenstein too. Per your communist ideals, how do you put together a collective protagonist? I think having a people fairly faceless in the 150 million, it's still a good poem. They're both successful poems. I should make that very clear. I think they both construct an effective narrative arc and really help plaster this idea of an ultimate victory really well. But I think what holds the 150 million back, I think in some ways, is that it relies a little too heavily on the idea that the protagonist is just the mass. Whereas the flying proletarian, I think even metaphorically, it takes some snippets of individual experience to sort of dramatize things. It'll zoom in and then zoom out. And I think the sort of level of narrative in 150 million is kind of on the same register the whole time. Again, it parallels debates around Eisenstein. Like, how do you make a collective protagonist? And in his films, the way that he does that is, again, zooming in and out and going from one person to the next. That being said, there is a flaw in just zooming in and out, as I've been calling it. Yeah, I think that what the flying proletarian does is it gives us something that we're used to seeing as a collective protagonist. It gives us an army or, I suppose, an air force, if you will. It gives us an air force. It gives us civil defense. It gives us things that we're used to recognizing as collective protagonists, whereas 150 million does that entirely mythologically. And this is, 
I think, easier to do today than it was for Mayakovsky in his era. And to my mind, this is the difference between futurism and science fiction, where in 150 million or in the flying proletarian, what we get is truly futurism because it's mixing a mythological register with a technological register, which is a little bit different than referring to specific technological imaginaries. And again, to sound self-absorbed, it's easier for me to do it in my version of 150 million because I can say, well, it's Voltron versus Devastator. Already during the democratic political debates, people were talking about the Voltron riot cop, which is that like, oh, well, you'll have Joe Biden in the head and Kamala Harris will be the fist and Pete Buttigieg will be the other fist and so on and so forth. Our myths are almost ready made in the 21st century. Exactly, exactly. And as a kid growing up, the idea of constructor cons form devastator as like the classic working class mecha monster to defeat any like you said, it's ready formed. Whereas mm-hmm. Mayakovsky is trying to build this out of whole cloth. And what he's doing yeah. is he's using this really obscure Russian, possibly Cossack myth that I don't even understand. And most of what I get is from the footnotes of McGavran and from this Princeton University Press monograph by Brown from the 70s, I think. And then also I get a lot of notes from Herbert Marshall who did a great translation of Mayakovsky's work in the 60s. But my understanding is that like a lot of stuff that Mayakovsky is doing, and this is another classic futurist thing. He says he's destroying the past. He says he's creating something new. And then in order to create something new, he reaches back to some sort of mythological thing that Mm -hmm. he's hoping that other people are going to get, but they don't get it because it's too obscure. (laughs) Mayakovsky modeled his narrative on the Belina, a Russian folk epic genre in which a simple underdog hero, often named Ivan, defeats almost always with unexpected ease an inconceivably powerful and dastardly enemy. Here too, though Wilson and his America are absurdly built up into preposterous mechanized nightmare, Ivan's victory seems inevitable. Mayakovsky's caricature of the class enemy is characteristically energetic and inventive. Paradoxically, his description of Chicago, the den of bourgeois iniquity and stronghold of the evil wizard Wilson, prefigures the aviation-based communist utopia he describes in The Flying Proletarian. One might also note the poem's ludicrous geography. At times, Mayakovsky seems to suggest that Chicago is on the Pacific coast. <laughs> yeah, he didn't go to the U.S. for another five years. After yeah, he, he did go poem. to New York at yeah. some point, but I can't remember when. Yeah, I also think that he Actually, sort of just didn't care is the other thing. Probably, <laughs> and honestly, I don't think it's anything that undermines the poem. We have yeah, that image of all the capitalists on the beach, though, and it's so not Chicago. It is like something out of a great monster movie, though. The capitalists are sunning themselves on the beach and then like, oh, shit, it's Ivan. It's Ivan. <laughs> rising like Godzilla out of what, Lake Michigan? Like <laughs> Out of Lake Michigan or out of the Pacific Ocean. It's not really clear. Yeah, right. He had to get there by going down the Black Sea and through the Straits of Gibraltar, which makes no sense. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, no. Yeah, it's not Cossack. It's It's a Russian Russian fable. But I don't think that people necessarily got it, except that Ivan is basically... He's the quintessential Russian It's like Joe, yeah. Yeah. You see this a bit in The Flying Proletarian also. I mean, heck, every time I see Ivan used to refer to specifically Soviet Russians, I think of that Clash song, Ivan Meets G.I. Joe. Oh, yeah.
it didn't take long at all for it to become embedded in just Cold War parlance, right? Like when yeah. Clash did that song, it was, you know, just yeah. sort of a send up of Cold War arms race bullshit. The idea of using Russia to personify Russia, something with borders, which communists want to smash, to nonetheless embody a communist ideal. And even within the Soviet Union, of all people, Mayakovsky should know Russia is not the Soviet Union because he is, I can't even remember what his various ethnicities were. He was part Ukrainian and part Cossack and raised in Georgia. And I don't think that he was ethnically Russian at all. There's a question of whether that matters or not, you know. But But, he saw something in it about embodying sort of like a multi-ethnic worker solidarity, frankly. I'll be as crude as I One would hope. Yeah. One would hope. yeah, well, I think that is... We get at that ultimately with my Soviet passport. It actually becomes clear. Yes, yes. and I think in terms of using a country to express internationalism, yeah, my Soviet yeah. passport does that far more because that's a very paradoxical tightrope to walk. Uh-huh. What does my nation embody? My nation embodies the end of nations. Yeah, it's a little discombobulated. It's very difficult for me to see specifically the use of Ivan to personify that and say it's successful. Now, that's me coming at it from my post-Cold War framework, though. So I'm not sure if that's a fair critique for me to be making. I see it as a limitation of modernism. And I think that with a postmodern outlook, we'd be more likely to say, that well, it can't just be Ivan. It can't just be one ethnicity. It can't just be male. It can't just be this. And I'm going to sound self-important when I do it, but when I was trying to continue the poem, when I was trying to do the thing that Mayakovsky wanted other people to do, when I was trying to rewrite it in a 21st century American context, I found myself saying like, well, it can't just be Joe. It's got to be Joe or Jose or Josie Mm -hmm. or just Mm -hmm. maybe Jay, you know, Mm -hmm. it could be anybody. And he wants to say that it could be anybody, but it it could be anybody embodied as this Russian myth. And that's exactly the limitation of it. And that in a certain really obvious way ends up embodying the limitations of the RSDLP, right? It's right there in the name, the Russian Mm -hmm. Social Democratic Labor Party. Okay, you could call it the Bolshevik Party, you could call it the Communist Party, but ultimately it is the Russians who are leading the way. Mm -hmm. And literally as he's writing this poem, the Russians with their new Red Army, the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party with the Red Army is now in the process of reconquering the old Russian Empire and then renaming it the Soviet Union. And it is a nice idea to think that that could be a multi-ethnic union of Soviets, but ultimately that's not so much what it ends up being. We even get things like this in that use of the word Bolshevik, which Bolshevik Mm -hmm. means majority party, and the use of the title 150 million, which is the literal population Population of the Soviet (laughs) Union, (laughs) right? And the very fact that there's a civil war going on means that, well, okay, you've not got 150 million people on your side. At best, Mm. you've got half of that. Yeah. And maybe not. Maybe not. I felt like the number was still appropriate today because to call it 300 million or 330 million or however many you have in the United States to this day would not be correct. But to say you have 150 million dedicated revolutionary socialists, communists, anarchists, whatever you want to call them in the United States right now, ready to form Devastator, that is radical enough. (laughs) Yeah, that's enough of a stretch right there. Yeah. And when you have 70 million people who genuinely believe that Donald Trump won the election, 
Yeah, you're talking about a then, far more postmodern landscape on which yeah. you try to win something like what we might call, you know, socialism, anarchism, what post-capitalism, whatever. Yeah, the beginning uh, of yeah. history. I love that. That's yeah, that's yeah, I yeah. always took that as an anarchist talking point, but I'm sure the communists use it too. It's uh, yeah. It's a little bit different where you have this notion, and particularly this is cursed in the Bolshevik experience, this notion of well, we gotta build to socialism now. Now I can string you along every five years telling you what to do to get where we want to go. But of course, Mayakovsky thrives on this, the imagination of what the future will look like. And he will periodically drop these notes where like, it's hard right now. We've got to work through it. We'll get there. I want to stop at this moment that I think is, to my mind, as an eco-materialist, the most important aspect Mm -hmm. of the whole poem, 150 million, which is in the McGavran translation on page 201. I think I know the section you're going to point to. I really like this section also. Is this not just the yep, people? Exactly, because it's not about people. It's, it's actually Russia about as everything. Yeah. It is exactly yeah. Russia as uh-huh. an ecology. Yeah. And all these 150 million people, billions of fish, trillions of insects, wild animals, house pets, hundreds of provinces with everything that was built and stood or lived in them, everything that could move and everything that couldn't, everything that barely moved, creeping, crawling, swimming, all of it burst forth like lava, like lava, and buzzed above the place where Russia once stood. Who gives a damn about the saccharine trade to pound the clanging bells? That's what the heart desires. Today, we rush Russia into paradise through the rainbow-colored chinks and sunsets go 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 let's go let's go let's go (laughs) through the white guard of snows there's an incredible aggressiveness even to the extent of like let's fight a war with the united states it's wild the civil war is not even finished not even near finished Mm -hmm. when he he starts Mm -hmm. this in 1919 you know i mean it's very romantic and fanciful it's not just the human beings fighting this war it's literally, well, Russia as an ecology. It's like uh-huh. the earth itself will rise up behind these 150 million human beings. And I think that also, this gets to what you were saying earlier about futurism, Frank, about puncturing some of the myths about it, that it didn't really give much of a crap for nature. And it just wanted to build, 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 build. The Soviet Union was certainly a very Promethean society in the worst sense of the word. In the like, sense you know, that it felt like being chained to a stone and having your liver gnawed out? The second word, <laughs> the word. Uh, <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's like, honestly, at a certain point, it didn't care about ecology. Its factories would be intensely pollutive in terms of yeah. water, air, all of that. But in those early years, there were actually some very interesting experiments happening about how to approach what we would call today the metabolic rift. You know, how do we build cities that are still cities? but are far more like in harmony with what's around them and actually are able to have sort of a more equal back and forth with the rhythms of nature and of ecology. I had forgotten about this, but this guy, Vladimir Vernadsky, he was a Soviet mineralogist and geochemist. This is off Wikipedia. He is most noted for his 1926 book, The Biosphere, in which he inadvertently worked to popularize Edward Seuss's 1885 term, The Biosphere, by hypothesizing by life is the geological force that shapes the earth. So you have these types of experiments. You also have some very, very not so experiments like Bogdanov, you know, he worked in prolet cults with folks like Mayakovsky. He like invented the blood transfusion, actually died an early death because he tried to give himself a blood transfusion. 
And he was much more of a futurist also in, in the way we right. saw up out of Bogdanov. When you look at these types of experiments in the first like eh, maybe 10 years of the Soviet experiment, they have a notably different character than what you would expect from this sort of marching into history, big burly worker, brutalist it's, Sovietism. It's know? still experimental. There's no clear yeah. notion of it has to be one way. Mm-hmm. Sort of like what I say to the literature classes, which is, well, there are some wrong interpretations, but there are a mm-hmm. lot of right ones. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's mm-hmm. try out yeah. the good ones, right? Yeah. They definitely always had the notion that there were some wrong ones. <laughs> yeah. yeah, sure. Yeah. That's why I do like that section, because it does remind me, especially in 1920, this sort of sense of like a flourishing of very different interpretations and many that were incredibly sensitive to ecology. At the very least, aware of non-human animals and even aware of objects in a different way. And I think that some of the futurist fascination with machines plays into that. We get a different version of it in The Flying Proletarian. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. But to my mind, the reason why I'm fascinated by it is it reminds me very much of Morton's book, Humankind. This probably came out on Verso in 2017, 2018-ish. Morton's an eco-critic, and he is refitting Marxism more or less in that book to take into account new materialism, as I would Mm -hmm. call it, or eco-materialism. It just squares very much with that and also Mm -hmm. with what I see going on in the literature in, to my mind, Trumbo's Johnny Got His Gun, which is yeah one of my favorite novels. Uh, One thing people forget about that book is it's not just that it's the horror of what's happened to him, but it's also in a certain sense all about him identifying with objects, which is really interesting that he's like Mm -hmm. become an object and he thinks in a different way about animals and he thinks in a different way about objects because of that. And so that's doing something that the eco-materialists are interested in right now, but it's also mm-hmm. something that it appears we get hints of in Mayakovsky. We also get hints of it in Wilfred Owen because I'm obsessed with that. You get hints of it everywhere if you look for it. Morton talks about seeing it in Heidegger, but I'm not really interested in Heidegger because he was a Nazi. No, no um, But a lot of theorists are into Heidegger. My project is not to rehabilitate Heidegger, but other people can do that if they want to. Anna, Rachel, do you have closing comments on 150 million or do you want to move on to the next? I guess my closing comment would be, you know, I kind of agree when we talk about how the flying proletarian does this better. I take the whole poem to be a dream, you know, and especially Ivan and stuff. And it's so important to like dream of what the future could be like or might be like, or what would victory look like? I think that's something that we don't get enough in leftist literature right now, you know, but it's something that you could imagine needing in the Soviet Union in this period. When we think about it as a dream, then I think it's doing well for what it's set out to do, if that's his intent. But again, to my taste, I think the flying proletarian, I don't know, just attacks it without as much flourish. And I appreciate that. Tell us a little bit more about what you liked about The Flying Proletarian. As of right now, I mean, I'm rereading through it. And it reminds me of multiple things that we've talked about in the past. You know, he goes through the different sequences in battle and then describes, obviously, the gas, which obviously, you know, connects to what we've talked about earlier. Yeah. When you read through the whole thing and get to the final, or at, at least the midsections where he's talking about the planes with the Ku Klux Klan attacking, you know, as a symbol yeah. of fascism. Yeah. To me, it's comparable to, I just watched this, so it's going to be my reference. When you watch Spartacus, right? 
you go through uh, three-ish hours until you get to the big fight scene at the end. And once you do, it's amazing. And it's what you've waited through, you know, all this bullshit for. And (laughs) I kind of see that in this. Is it wrong to say a more realistic dream? If we're talking about them both as a dream, I think that maybe one is a plan and then the other is action. Yeah. At least Mm. to me. Yeah, yeah. The 150 million is sort of the myth. And then the flying proletarian is like, how would you actually do that with the technology that you have? Because you don't have an infinitely regenerating Cloverfield demon to send to your enemies. Does anybody remember that movie? I got a couple of, (laughs) maybe you do. What? I remember it. Yeah, Cloverfield. I think that you're probably too young for it, Anna, right? Yeah, probably. Basically, you get into the late sections of the movie and you discover that not only is it one monster, but it's these other little monsters that are, I guess, if I'm remembering it clearly. And of course, this is all through found footage. So it's like you see it just barely in very dim, grainy, shaky camera angles in the midst of chaos. But it appears that other little tiny monsters spawn from the wounds of the Cloverfield monster. And it's Ivan. It's, you know, that Woodrow Wilson and strikes him and then an army of a million workers burst forth from his loins the 150 million is mayakovsky's way of saying we are legion yeah exactly yeah in a very literal way it's like you were looking at one thing but this one thing is all things and it is everywhere yeah it's so hard to imagine these things without going to mythology and even you say we are legion like i am legion comes from a moment in the gospels where jesus is trying to cast out demons and he says what's your name and he says oh yeah I am oh, legion. i'm legion yeah. because yeah. because there are like millions of demons inside of him yeah obviously we go through the battle right and then apparently we win But it's interesting to me how he imagines work, right? And Mm -hmm. labor. Oh, yeah. And then, Mm -hmm. no, 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 not just that, but basically how he describes the labor. He goes through and he talks about basic manufacturing and stuff. And in his Mm -hmm. envisioning of this life, it's interesting to me how he has actually envisioned us as we are Mm now. Do you think that it actually is like our world almost? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we're in a capitalist version of it, but in this notion that all needs are cared for. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not even leisure time, just free time. Yeah. Time we can do whatever we want with is taken seriously. I mean, to a certain extent, the catchphrase that people use these days would be like fully automated luxury communism. Luxury gay space communism. Don't forget that part. We keep adding adjectives on to <laughs> we it. We do. We do. <laughs> fully automated luxury uh Luxury communism, (laughs) luxury communism of whatever location and you know gender attraction you prefer. Yeah, but like, why would he have that in there if he's dreaming of something completely different? Why would he have that in there? Is it? Would he have what in there? Is it this obsession with technology that he's talking about with airplanes and things? Like I said, when he talks about manufacturing, like you said, you know, it is to me reflective of what we have now. And I'm just wondering, like, it's not reflective of what we have now. What it is, is it's reflective of the way that we imagine what we have now. Because he wants there to be a world where the machines do all the drudgery and then the workers come in and they push a few buttons to make sure everything's going well and Mm -hmm. so on and so forth. 
And what neoliberalism has done is basically found ways to kind of hide away the drudgeries. You know, Amazon's a good example, right? We know that we can get whatever we need very quickly and very easily, and it looks very quick and it looks very easy. But those of us who look into it for even just a little bit, we can see that the cost of that is actually people busting their asses in the warehouses to make it happen. For nothing. Uh, Yeah, exactly. So if you imagine then with all that technological sophistication and all that optimism, only in a system that's non-capitalist, where you basically say, well, okay, we're going to give every worker, you know, whatever X amount of money is a comfortable living wage. And actually, we're going to have so many machines doing this, that basically what you're doing is you're just managing the machines and making sure they don't break down. And, you know, we have enough people that you only maybe have to work four hours a day because you've got so many shifts going in and out. And it's not like an hourly wage type situation. Everybody's just getting the same amount of money because it's what you need to live on. Once you do it that way, because you don't have to worry about paying Jeff Bezos a bajillion dollars for everything, once you get rid of the profit motive and you just have the state or if you prefer an syndicalist collective running the whole process, I did a very bad British accent this time, but you get the point. Once you cut out the profit motive, you could do something that looks very similar and have a lot less strife. And that's what he's imagining. And that's why it's different from what we have today. Yeah. I think that recognizing it as so close to what we have today, Anna, is actually a way of saying that this is not a crazy dream. Right. Yeah. I mean, like some elements of it, like the idea that instead of having a city with trains and streets, you'd have just airports and you'd just hop up and hop down. Like that's a little crazy. I mean, he's not thinking about stuff like carbon emissions. No. You could have something pretty similar with trains crisscrossing every which way. That would actually be quite easy. Yes. Talk about feasibility. Compare the American train system to the European train system. And you start to actually see how nuts it is that our public transit and public transport in the U.S. is how it is. Yeah. In a lot of American cities, I know in L.A. where you're at and certainly in Philly where I used to be, you had literal trolley lines crisscrossing the whole city at one point and then they were done away with in large part from pressure from the big auto manufacturers. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The red car is no more. Thank you. Who framed Roger Rabbit? I was going to say, it's like so well known (laughs) that a literal cartoon movie has mythologized it. I think that this is another reason why my preference is for the flying proletarian. And honestly, I don't want to dichotomize between 150 million and flying proletarian too much because I think they're both successful poems. But my preference for the flying proletarian is the way that Mayakovsky writes the battle is so engaging. And also, I love the way the battle ends. It's not by defeating America. It's through a revolution. So we, yeah, we've learned that they've joined us. Yeah. This is page 288 in the McGavin. Joy, in a giant hooray, our shuddering mouths still wanted to roar and roar to their fill, while all across the sky an enormous telegram was traced out by Radio Rasta. Peace. The nations have finished their fighting. Long live this minute. The great American Federation is joining the Union of Soviets. There wasn't a doubt in anyone's mind. It was signed the American Revolutionary Committee. And then it goes immediately into the description of full communism, fully automated, whatever we yeah. want to call it. We yeah, are the flyboys of the Republic of workers yeah. and peasants. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's a hilarious accident of translation. It sounds cool, if I'm being honest. Yeah. Yes. It yeah. really fucking does. It just reminds me of Snoopy. You know, so it sounds less cool to me. <laughs> 
when he's the Red Baron or no? Yeah, the Red Baron. yeah. it just doesn't sound. He's cool. fighting the Red Baron. Yes, he's fighting the Red yeah. Baron. Yeah, but that's what's so weird about this is that he is in an era of literal fucking plywood and canvas biplanes. He is mm-hmm. imagining a world that is almost like Doctor Strangelove level B fifty twos, flying fortresses. He even has flying aircraft carriers in that poem. The idea mm-hmm. that like other little planes will take off on the backs oh, of the big, big planes. planes. It's fucking <laughs> wild. Otherwise known as how I learned to love luxury communism. Yes. Um, <laughs> I just love this ending section where he's like, where no enemy cavalry can step, nor bird, nor human foot. Our flyboy everywhere gives pursuit to the forces mm-hmm. of the enemy. Ah, oh, chef's kiss. <laughs> this is Mayakovsky at his absolute best. Of yet. Oh, wow. Let me rephrase that. This is one of those moments when the futurism starts to spill over into sci-fi. Yeah, yeah. Um, Frank, I agree with your definition that the 150 million is maybe better use of futurism qua futurism because it's building new myths. But this is a sense of building futurity. Because by this time, this is 1925. Civil War is over. You know, the revolutionary moment in Germany had passed. The revolutionary wave in Europe had ebbed. So this notion that what are we holding out for here? Yeah. And also acknowledging that the holding out is going to mean a lot of fighting and dying. Yeah. Um, Building and inspiring futurity then with the ending. Yes, exactly. I think that's completely true. I mean, like only the first half of the poem is war. Right, right. The second half is describing, again, full communism, fully automated luxury communism. Would I quibble with a lot of stuff, as you said, Frank? Yes. I mean, you know, there's no reason for everyone to have their own sort of personal airplane you know like he doesn't go that'd be far, nice i mean like you could do it you could do it if everybody had a little nuclear reactor you know you could do yeah, it right? <laughs> you, could do. you yeah. could do it if people weren't so skeeved out about it you could do it and in fact it might be more efficient but it'd be kind of dangerous to have all those things flying around in the sky you know is it worth is it worth it off. it probably is no 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 is it worse than cars on the road well, it's in three dimensions instead of two, but yeah, it's the sort of the same amount of insanity. It's one of these moments where we see this fundamental individualism bleeding through in Mayakovsky, that he is very individualistic in ways that he kind of wishes that he weren't. That the idea that like, oh, I'm going to have my own little plane here, you know, <laughs> yeah. you just get on the train with everybody else. And that's one thing that I've always loved about Man with a Movie Camera is the way that it focuses so much on the trains and the trolley infrastructure. That is a sort of very collectivist notion of what transportation would look like. And going out of its way to make it look cool and to say this is the future is kind of a big deal. But, you know, he doesn't know exactly what things are going to look like, and that's okay. But the point is that he's giving some inspiration. I love Mm -hmm. the way that he ends these poems, and really both of them. But let's do a little comparison before we move on to other things. I do think that obviously the flying proletarian gives us something of like a more realistic what would war look like. And that engages Mm -hmm. with all kinds of things that people are talking about in the interwar years about what's going to happen with gas warfare and what's going to happen with aerial warfare and Mm -hmm. strategic bombing and stuff like that and stuff that ends up getting tried out, of course, by Spain and by Italy, especially in Africa, and then eventually in the Spanish Civil War before we get to see it in the Second World War with the Blitzkrieg. But what we get in these two poems and what sort of anchors their futurism and their science fiction elements to the other things that Mayakovsky is doing in this same period where he's like, yo, boil your water. (laughs) 
these fuckheads don't even wash their fruit. Make sure you boil everything or you're going to get sick. <laughs> the cholera is um, going to get you. Yeah. yeah. These very little things that he's doing to try and push people into a more modern, better future through propaganda. And then also the dream of what the future will look like. He really weaves that together in the ends of both these poems. The end of 150 million in McGavran's translation is, it's for you, the bloody Iliad of revolutions, the odyssey of hungry years is for you. Imagining the 150 million as Ivan talking to oneself from the present to the future, from the future to the present, is this very weird crisscrossing, then reaching all the way back to the beginnings of these epic myths, the bloody Iliad of the revolutions, the odyssey of the hungry years, that like right now we're in it. We did the revolution. We're doing the revolution. We're doing the civil war. And then there's still going to be this odyssey of hungry years, but we're going to get to it. We're going to get to socialism. And of course, like I said, this can be manipulated by the Stalinists. This can be manipulated by the state and by the party to get people to put up with anything. But this is the dream, right? Five years later, at the end of The Flying Proletarian, give us the sky, thrust the sharp knife of words into the fairy tale of the future. Give us the sky. These are the dreams of what things can be like. And he sees the need to show that dream to people, to give them a sense of like, this is what we're working toward. Let's yeah. be fly boys and actually do it. Yeah. Let's... Exactly. What about the name Borguis? Can we appreciate that for a second? I like oh, it. And he uses Borgui. it everywhere. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I haven't looked to see if I could find it in other translations because the thing about the McGavran translation is I'm told that it's not super true to the original, but I'm also told that that's kind of impossible. And the thing is that not too many people have done these long poems in translation. I love bourgeois. It's like a slur for bourgeois, yeah, right? Yeah. I guess it's supposed to sound gooey. <laughs> it almost sounds like zombies, right? Mm -hmm. Did you see it in any other translations or is it just mm, in McGavran? No, no. I don't know if anybody else has translated these long poems. I'm tempted to say that this was McGavran's yeah, contribution. Yeah. And that's great because I do love the McGavran book. He doesn't tend to worry too much about Mayakovsky's rhymes, which is, I think, what let him get through those long, long ones. Burgoos. We could bring that one back, you know. Can you imagine <laughs> just going up to someone and saying, like, you fucking Borgui. Borgui. Get, get out of here. I am he, totally for The thing is that he could have just said bougies, but he said Borgui's. No. So I, my guess is that McGavran is phonetically translating that. Because if he was going to translate it conceptually, he'd just say bougie. Yeah, that's true. Because we have that word in the United States. Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah but bougie's just been replaced. <laughs> I think the problem is that bougie it. has migrated to something that's less class conscious. So Borgui yeah, yeah. needs to take that place now. Yeah. We'll bring it back. Borgui. Enough about the Borgui's because we're going to talk about life life as a life? never-ending meeting oh my god we're gonna say right in, in soviet russia meeting runs you, runs you. oh god <laughs> <laughs> fuck you apparently lenin liked this poem i don't know if that's actually true i'm inclined to believe because i'm a cynical dude that yeah lenin mentioned this poem in a speech yeah. because 
well, maybe he's trying to do something to manipulate the way that Soviet culture operates to get it more towards a party culture and less towards a meeting-based culture. But you see this in, I think, early Soviet culture. So you see it in Leninism. You also see it in Maoism, I'd say, as well, where there's, on the one hand, this sense of like, oh, yes, we want everybody's ideas. We want to hear everybody put in their two cents in the meeting and have out with it. And then like this response, which starts with with sense of like, we're having too many meetings, this is too dull. And your ultimate crackdown being, well, we've used the meeting to flesh out the counter-revolutionaries and now we can attack them. I have nothing but bullshit to say. All meeting out. Is that not the Zoom meetings that we've been through in this past year? Like, I know it not is, literally, yeah. but oh, yeah. oh my God. No doubt. I mean, I shudder to think what it was like for people in collective. I imagine people in legit anarchist bookstores, you know, you'd have your whole life in work life be meetings on Zoom, and then you'd do your bookstore meeting also on Zoom. And yeah. I think this is great satire. Yeah. I think it's excellent satire. Because, I think it's you know, okay but, satire. I mean, well, <laughs> but the reason, again, I'm being very, very subjective in this just because I do come from a left culture where this just endless meetings after endless meeting after endless meeting, you know, until I hit my thirties and I was fucking burnt out and screw that, you know, I have better things to do with my time than just sit in meeting after meeting after meeting, all of which will be inevitably frustrating. So, you know, when I read things like there were two meetings at once in a day, we have about 20 meetings to attend. Whether we like it or not, we have to split double. Below the belts here and the rest somewhere else. Again, the sort of left lineage I come out of is of these small socialist sects and things like that. But even today, it just does feel like meeting after meeting after meeting. And you start to forget why after yeah. that. So when you're in the middle of revolutionary Russia, and it's not just meeting of your party cell, but your factory committee meeting, you know, factories were still at least at this point, nominally democratically run. Right. So, you know, you have the factory committee meeting and then work stops. And then all of a sudden you need to call another meeting. And to me, it begs the question, we've talked about this before in our previous conversation about Mayakovsky. If communism and socialism are supposed to be about the freeing of human spirit, then why are we always in fucking meetings? Meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting, it feels like it sort of grinds you down after a while. That's kind of what I feel like Mayakovsky's getting at at this point. He's trying to figure out this paradox and this tension between socialism as an ideal and socialism as it actually is being experienced. Yeah. Well, to me, you know, it kind of goes off of your point there, because to me, you know, if we talk about meeting after meeting after meeting, you know, you get this kind of, well, this is the wrong word, but you know, you get this repeated cycle of doing something, but then not really doing something. So then you Mm -hmm. don't feel like you're doing anything. And, you know, that's comparable to when we're not talking about the flying proletarian or 150 million, you know, to me, that's the cycle of having to go to work for basic necessities. And it's this cycle that wears you out and wears everyone out, Mm -hmm. you know, and Mm -hmm. you can see that maybe more so in the flying proletarian, but I also see that, you know, today as well, obviously with the Zoom meetings and such, but even with our experiences with Goodwill, you know? (laughs) Well, I'm actually tempted to ask a question about student government. Rachel. Oh, it it actually, it actually, no, it's like that too. The meetings are three hours long and we seemingly accomplish something. But then when you exit the meeting, you feel like you've done nothing. Like you've sat there. Yeah. 
I've definitely burnt myself out this year. It's like going to all these meetings, but I don't have time to actually do the stuff I'm supposed to do after the meetings or actually take care of myself. That's what these meetings do. That is mm-hmm. why it's the antithesis. Time because wasters. it clearly makes you sick, you know, mm-hmm. either mentally or physically or sometimes both. And then why are we doing it? Just so we can get invited to other meetings and go through the same cycle. Yeah. It instills a sense of malaise that really does take a toll on your, not just mental health, but physical health. We put our blood, sweat, and tears into it. And I got like one productive thing done this year. Well, sometimes one thing's all you can do. I mean, sometimes one thing's all anybody does in their whole life. I hate to be grim like that. For you to do one thing in a few (laughs) months, that's good. That's great. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a fundamental problem of, I'm tempted to not even say radical culture, I'm tempted to say just political culture, generally speaking, but it becomes much more obviously problematic in radical culture because there are very specific goals and there are also very specific values. In, for instance, anarchist culture specifically, it can be almost comically recursive in the way that you're always dealing with people who are very new to the culture. You're always dealing with people who are very new to the politics, and you're always supposed to be very inclusive and very deferential to going round and round and round and round and round on everything. Mm -hmm. In liberal political cultures, You attempt to solve that problem by having very clearly prescribed rules and very clearly proscribed behaviors, you know, very clear systems for like, well, this is the way that we do things and this is how we go about this. This will tend to ice out the more radical elements in what the Marxist-Leninists called democratic centralism. You solve (laughs) the problem by saying that we have certain committees that deal with certain things and the big issues are dealt with by central committee. And once we deal with one question, we don't go back. We don't ever backtrack. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we're not going to fight old battles. Once we make a decision, then we just move forward. And if you have a problem, then you split off with 70 bajillion other Trotskyist sects. Gee, I can't imagine what that is like. Yeah, so there are various ways of solving the problem, but it's always a problem because Mm -hmm. the whole point is to find our way to where we're living life. Like life starts after the revolution, right? Mm -hmm. And yet that life looks like endless meetings. So how how do you reconcile those two things? In my (laughs) opinion, it's extremely difficult to do. And I feel like that's still in the process, obviously. But in the notes, when they talk about Mayakovsky writing these and with his talent and hard work, when, you know, the upper echelons of power didn't really ask for this service, I think to me that says if you possess, you know, the common talents and hard work within bureaucracy, you think that you can escape it. But Mayakovsky himself is proof that even with talent and hard work, and that's why he's critiquing it, you know, there really is no end to this, even if you do everything right. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if I have a whole lot more to say about that. I just think it is a sort of fundamental paradox. That's not to say that I think that it's a paradox that should be solved through authoritarian control. I mean, I think that that's basically where we get with capitalism, right? Is that like, well, okay, I'm going to tell you what to do. That's all well and good. That's, you know, efficient, but it's not the way that people want to live. But then again, people don't necessarily want to live in a constant meeting either. I think that maybe the best comeback to this kind of a paradox that we get is the sort of classic white collar quip, this meeting could have been an email. 
Yeah, I mean, frankly, it's not just a white collar aphorism now. It's like all of us are, you know, this could have been an email. Or yeah. Hell, I could have that tattooed on the back of my eyes. <laughs> well, and to me, it's so funny because a year ago when we started, we were like, oh, my gosh, Zoom. You're like, oh, my gosh, we're doing this podcast. And like, now here we are, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> completely burnt out. But well, like I said, I think that Lenin's supposed love of all beating doubt might have also been a ploy. Yeah, like we say, that might have been part of the shift away from the Soviets into more central control of things. But also that does express obviously something that everybody feels with these situations mm-hmm. like, fuck this, I don't want to be in a fucking meeting. And so you got to be real about it. You know, Mayakovsky always keeping it real. So the year after that, he writes Pro Eto, which apparently Lunacharsky loved. And I still find that hilarious. We went over that a little bit in the last episode. I feel like I could talk about that till the day I die, but that's true of a lot of these poems. So we'll, we'll just continue forward to when Lenin dies. And in 1924, Mayakovsky writes Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, his epic encomium to Lenin. I think one thing that he does in this poem well that I'm surprised, I guess that I should have read enough history to understand it in the first place. Like, why did it have to be Lenin? Why does Lenin matter? But he does in this poem basically set out the whole history of Russia in that period in terms of what Lenin does, the stands Lenin takes, the battles he fights, both literally and ideologically, and how he was basically always right at least insofar as it got them to that point, it got them through the revolution, it got them through the civil war, it got them to the point of having a union of Soviet socialist republics. And I don't know, it's kind of hard to argue with. I don't have a whole lot of comments in terms of the aesthetics of this poem, but I do think it is very interesting in terms of the way that it does, in a certain sense, resolve this problem that we've been obsessing over this whole time, the obvious problem of, well, what is a collective poetry? What is a collective protagonist? And how does the individual fit into Mm. that? Because Vladimir Lenin ends up sort of being Mayakovsky's Ivan, isn't he? (laughs) Yeah, I I think so. I mean, I think that, and again, this is one of those moments where you can start to see the cult of personality really start to instill itself. But that being said, you can also see a way in which you can use a single human to personify the soul of a nation, whatever you call it, the soul of a struggle, and do it effectively without it just being worship of the single personality. Like this was very easily used by Stalinism and the cult of personality and things like that. But I do think you see something that's a lot more multidimensional than that. And it was incredibly well-received. Apparently the newspapers reported on highly successful public performances, which is very different than the way that readings of the 150 million were, at least how they were reported on. Again, I'm just going off Wikipedia here. The Soviet literary critics approached the poem with caution, which is interesting to me because... I mean, I guess maybe this is an expression about... I think this would be the safe one, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You can sort of maybe see a bit of negotiation about the sort of increasing stultification and bureaucratization of the revolution being negotiated with literary critics themselves and trying to figure out, okay, how much can we get away with here? Yeah, there might be something there in that, but I found that interesting that the A, that the public performances were very successful, evidently, but the literary critics were kind of like lukewarm to it, trying to keep it at arm's length. I don't know why I find that interesting, but I do. 
Oh, I think it's very interesting because it's indicative of this sort of transitional moment where nobody knows exactly where the culture is going and you've already established a sort of conformist culture. The fact that people aren't sure what to say is proof of that. It's like when I'm teaching a class and, you know, I ask, well, shit, any question. (laughs) Everybody's sitting on their hands, not wanting to say anything because Mm. they want somebody else to stick their neck out first because they don't want to disappoint me. And it's like, there's nothing I can ever fucking do to convince anyone (laughs) that, no, really, I, you know, want you to give your ideas about something because... I'm not me. I'm just like a fucking prof. I'm the boss. I'm the manager. And so nobody wants to get in trouble. I always thought that it was a little bit easier on the East Coast because there's a little bit less of a conformist culture and people are a little bit more willing to be the one asshole who's like, this is bullshit. Y'all are a quiet lot. Yeah, we are. And it's a <laughs> I never have understood why everyone is so afraid. If you don't say anything, how can you progress or regress? To me, it's so dumb. I think one thing that we see, and I keep peeping the ends of these poems because they're so, so long, but then you look at the end, they always do come back around to the same thing. This is the greatest of all great wars ever known to history, is the end of Vladimir Ilyich Lenin. I think it's interesting that Mayakovsky never breaks out of this war to end all wars mindset. It's a revolutionary mindset. He's not doing it in the Wilsonian sense, but it is something of his era. It is of the teens and early 20s. And even as he extends it into the mid to late 20s, there's a lot of that still there. There's a lot of that notion of the, here's the future world that we're making. I don't know. I suppose, lamentably, not enough of the notion of how the individual fits into that. That ends up being the question of, well, what do you do with people who are a little bit different? That doesn't enter into it as much as you'd think, which is interesting because it's something that I think anchored his poetry from the beginning. Mm -hmm. It's something that I think anchored his notion of blasphemy and his notion of sort of romantic individualism that we see in the early poems. And honestly, in almost all of the poems up until about that, And that sort of falls off and then comes back in little glimpses that we see in maybe the conversation with the tax collector and maybe with Sergei Yesenin. So, Anna, I want to throw to you the poem to Sergei Yesenin. um, I've been waiting for this. Because I know that this was your hobby horse. Yeah, it was. And it is for a couple of reasons. I really like this poem. And honestly, I feel like most people would be like, why do you like this poem about this dead guy? Same as they'd say, why is your favorite movie a movie for children? And to them, I'd say, fuck you. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, because there is, you know, beyond this being a poem for an old friend, there actually is merit in here. And especially when we talk about beyond the person itself, obviously, the obvious reading is a mental health reading. Mm-hmm. in this poem and you know I'm always down for that and reading the notes and stuff I love the history of this poem and also what it says not only about this man 
but about what he's living in and then later on you know what Mayakovsky is living in as well and all the things that drive him to commit suicide not saying that they are exactly equal but again they were alive around the same time basically when I go through the notes they talk about how this was obviously about Sergei I cannot pronounce his name Yasmin and apparently you know he was a rival of Mayakovsky's according to the notes and stuff like Mm. that you know he was a leader of the peasant poets and stuff yeah. Uh-huh. And then he goes on blah 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 and then he ends up again with this brutal suicide much like Mayakovsky's in this hotel where he, you know, cuts his own wrist and then writes a poem in his blood and I think that poem actually is very it's simple and some might call it cheesy but I also think it's very powerful and I'll read it to you. Goodbye, my friend. No handshake and no word. Don't be sad. Don't knit your brow. In this life, to die is nothing new. But then, of course, to live isn't any newer. And then it goes on to talk about how Mayakovsky believes Yezman's death and suicide would push them to the edge. But in reality, did that push Mayakovsky to the edge in everything else that we've talked about? And is this not only a requiem for suicide and mental health and the importance of it, but also he says to live is nothing newer and to live in this is nothing newer either. So maybe that's why we need these dreams of what could be, you know, with 150 million and the flying proletarian Mm -hmm. to go back to them. That was a lot. But obviously, I love this one because there's a deeper alternate readings here. And that's what I love about it. I also really like this poem, like the alternate reading of better to increase the output of ink and like the lack of able to be creative. I don't know if you guys read it like that. Yeah. A little bit. But like the conformist culture that we were talking about fucking sucks and how it impacted so many people. And, you know. Yeah, Yasmin is all meeting out. Yeah, and you you get Mayakovsky riffing on the death poem by making this really dark joke about how like, oh, you made more ink, dude. There's a lot going on here in terms of getting a window into what it meant to be a rival of Mayakovsky, Mm -hmm. right? Like, yes, they were rivals. There's an incredible respect, though. Yes. Not just respect, a love like serious love and affection and of course that shouldn't surprise us given that he also hated all the women he loved too yes yes, (laughs) exactly i mean like mayakovsky is someone who hated to be alive but wanted so badly to love it and kept living i think in the hopes that it might be worth living eventually so i know very little about yosemite and so in preparation for the podcast, of course, I just did a little bit of background reading. And of course, you know, Anna, I think, summed him up better than I could. Came from sort of a peasant poet background. But it's interesting to me. He, he was someone who I think, if anything, had more of sort of an individualistic streak in him than Mayakovsky did. He wrote an autobiography in 1922. And he said, I never joined the Russian Communist Party being further to the left than them. So, yeah, he supported the February Revolution, the October Revolution, 
but he was also just very fiercely independent. Meanwhile, Mayakovsky's more and more trying to fit his square peg in a round hole in sort of like, how do I be an individualistic poet, this great romantic, while also being, you know, the best revolutionary I can be. I think in some ways I see in this poem Mayakovsky saying to Yesenin, almost admitting some jealousy, I think, in some ways. This is on 122 of the McGavern. The critics mutter, the blame here falls on this and that, above all, on a lack of rapport, which resulted in too much wine and beer. If you'd swapped your bohemians for the working class, they say, under their influence, you'd have quit your brawling ways. But what does the working class drink? <laughs> Lemonade? The working class, too, is full of drunks. I think in some ways he's talking about, like, again, let's cut against this treacly romanticization of the working class. Yeah. They're stultified by conformity, too. They're stultified by conformism, too. And so while Yesenin didn't really square the circle any better than Mayakovsky did, I do think Mayakovsky in some ways envied the fact that Yesenin ultimately didn't care. He was just Yesenin. Yeah. And, <laughs> and that was enough for him. Isn't this also in the era in which the Communist Party was trying to encourage people to drink a little bit less? Might have been. This might have been a little after, <laughs> I, I want to say. I always think of that moment as literally right after the revolution and during the Civil War. Am I wrong or wasn't Yesenin a bitter alcoholic too? Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. That's why Mayakovsky has all this bit about drinking vodka and stuff like that. Yeah, that's his whole point. I think the idea was that if I'm understanding the cultural context of this correctly, Yesenin committed suicide and sort of the party line on it was he was this degenerate, drunk individualist. And right. Mayakovsky is kind of recuperating that, saying like, listen, we're all drunks. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And, and in a certain yeah, sense, exactly. he's also saying we're all individuals, you know? Uh, and he says this in a number of moments throughout his career, of course, that sort of the, weird... Like, in the life of Brian Way, we're all individuals. Yeah, that weird kind of. individualism that's embedded in his collectivism that never really quite resolves itself yeah i definitely see that and i was going to comment this earlier i definitely see that split again in this poem because he's talking about them as individuals and he's talking about yesnin as an individual but you know towards the end he says forward march you know let time burst behind us like bombs in the air let the wind blowing back to the old days carry nothing but a chump of our hair for festivities, our planet is poorly designed. And then he goes on and talks to me, you know, almost as in a we. So he's still trying to figure that out. Well, here's the thing, Anna, he is talking to you. I mean, this is the yeah. crazy thing about no. Mayakovsky, that he is intending to talk to the future in these really obvious ways, these ways that he lays out like, you, the future generations know this, you know. He's talking to we and also to us. If that yeah, makes sense. yeah. And that's why I like that section so much. I mean, in a certain sense, I think that that's the best of Mayakovsky always is where we get these moments where it's like, oh, my God, this madman is yelling to me from across 100 <laughs> years, you know? Yeah. It's like the whatever film theory where you know you're watching something, but you're also aware that you're watching something and then you feel like you're being watched. And I feel like that's kind of what's happening here yeah. as well. 
I think yeah. that the conversation with the tax collector about poetry really hits on all these same themes, this notion of, well, how do I fit into the group? What does it mean that what I do is so weird? And what is the state going to do with me? We have a lot of these poems end with these weird moments where he offers something up like, here it is, the taxes for every cigarette I've smoked. And yeah. in case you haven't noticed from all the photos that I've, of course, sent you, <laughs> Mayakovsky was a chain smoker, you know, so he talks about like, oh, well, I, I smoked all these cigarettes and here's all the inspiration that I drew from the world around me. And here's what I contribute to the society. He's sort of comically explaining the position of the poet within the culture. He's dealing with this all along. His poem, The Poet Worker, deals with it perhaps most directly. Yeah. But then he continues to deal with it in, of course, his last poem at the top of my voice, where he imagines himself justifying his literary activities to sort of NKVD of the future that's questioning yeah. what is the worth of your output. And I just love the way that the conversation with the text collector about poetry. And this is where Rodchenko did the photo shoot where he's wearing the fedora and looking really pissed mm -hmm. off and you'll find some photos of him crumpling up pages of his poems i love that he ends it with this really belligerent note where he says i demand as my right an inch of ground among the poorest workers and peasants and if you think that all i have to do is to profit by other people's words then comrades here's my pen take a crack at it yourselves i mean he's also saying that just life without poetry is incomplete He's also at the same time saying like, fuck you, I do it better than you could. And, well, yeah. and so therefore I'm a worker just like you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, is it correct? <laughs> nah. But, uh, I mean, the fact of the matter is that we're talking about him. Well, yes, very true. But yeah, again, he's trying to, to sort of justify his existence in a society whose ideals should be sort of allowing everyone to become a poet. And yet it's becoming this stultifying sort of parody of itself. But we know that not everybody could become a poet and not everybody wants well, to become a poet. More very importantly. true. Very true. Very true. Yeah. yeah. Good luck to them. That's yeah. for sure. Yeah. This is, of course, that classic Rodchenko mm -hmm. design. We got two colors and black. And here he is wadding up the poem as he talks to the tax collector and looking like he's going to fucking kill you. Such a surly looking man. I mean, for a lot of people, this is the Mayakovsky they know. If you see one or two photos of Mayakovsky, it's probably this one. Yeah, this is one of them for sure. Anna, Rachel, any thoughts about this one? I like at the end how he's like, I will pay five once you take the zeros off. <laughs> yeah. Even this yeah. song speech, and I'm like, you get it. I just really like that. It's like that little <laughs> sassy bit at the end. <laughs> My Soviet Passport has been really, honestly, it's a poem that's taken a lot of trash because it was always considered this classic nationalist poem. And I think that it's actually doing something quite different. 
I didn't know this before. You yeah, spoke, it's like it was assigned yeah. reading in Stalinist schools. It was yes, like frequently used in yeah. because it's an easy poem to understand and it connects with the whole sort of history of the Soviet Union and the dream of the workers' socialist utopia. And honestly, it engages with the contradiction of nationalism in that context really well. But you can see also how that could be smoothed over by Stalinism. Alex, tell us what your thoughts on this one are. I mean, how do you use something with borders to talk about a borderless future, a future without nations? This is a really great example. Is he being hyperbolic? Of course, he's a poet. It's what we do. But we also need to understand that in the late 20s, the Soviet Union genuinely did have this incredible prestige and admiration of working class people all over the world. That's not just Soviet myth-making coming in there and burnishing their own credentials. Because they were living the dream. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. And, And I think all over the world, you had communist and socialist parties, be they officially affiliated with the Soviet Union or not, that would have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in them. The socialist ideal had been alive and well and was like a cold, hard fact, certainly all across Europe and North America, but also in many of the colonies across what we would call the third world. These were real forces to be reckoned with. And so the Soviet Union played an essential role in the sort of imagination of literally millions of people who were working class or peasant or oppressed or colonized folks all over the world. And this is before there was much knowledge of the... Of the crimes of Of the gulags, yeah. yeah. Exactly, yeah. This is before the Moscow trials had really taken hold, certainly way before the Khrushchev speeches in 56. So there wasn't really much varnish on that part of the imagination. I pull it out from my wide trouser legs, a duplicate of precious cargo. Read it and envy me. I am a citizen of the Soviet Union. If you're reading that in a Stalinist school in 1951, you read it in a very different way than how it was actually intended. Because how it was actually intended, people were genuinely envious, you know, saying because it was this notion of I have democracy at work. I have power at work. Was that actually the case? No, not really. But that's when he says, envy me, I'm a citizen of the Soviet Union. That's what he's expressing. I love that he's actually, insofar as he could, working in a critique. The Mm -hmm. opening to this is just so vicious. And I love how vicious it is because I first read this, you know, when I was very much in sort of my meeting doubt anarchist Mm -hmm. stage. And to read him write, I'd tear like a wolf at bureaucracy for mandates, mm-hmm. my respects, but the slightest to the devil himself, I'd chuck without mercy every red taped paper, but this. Yeah. And his use of that red taped paper, which so much in Mayakovsky just reaches across history to, we still use that term red tape, but then also to signify the color of the Soviet revolution within it. He's saying like, yeah, listen, I know that we've kind of built this annoying bullshit bureaucracy but hey look what we did yeah there's a heart in this or yeah there, there is something in this that is he wouldn't use the term pure but is untainted there's a dream it's meaningful there's a, there's a vision yes there is meaning and you know it's meaningful yeah. because of the people who are scared of it and the people who respect it he's traveling in france and they're looking at his passport those very official gentlemen 
Mm-hmm. Take that red-skinned passport of mine. Take like a bomb. Take like a hedgehog, like a razor, double-edged, stropped. Take like a rattlesnake, huge and long, with at least 20 fangs poison-tipped. The porter's eyes give a significant flick. I'll carry your baggage for me, mon ami. So it's like this moment where there's class consciousness. He sees the cops. They're like scared of this paper. It's literally their job to check everybody's papers. And they're scared of this one because he's, oh shit, this guy's a Soviet. He's a red. And at the same time, the dude who's carrying the baggage is on Mayakovsky's side. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and of course, it's played up. Of course, it's cheesy. And what what else would you expect from Mayakovsky with what delight that gendarme cast would have me strung up and whipped raw? This yeah. is the Herbert Marshall translation. Because I hold in my hands, hammered fast, sickle clasp, my red Soviet passport. And Marshall does a really good job of hitting the rhythms At least that's what I'm told from people who read Russian. And then he returns right after that, as he refers to the passport, he returns right back to that refrain. I'd tear like a wolf at bureaucracy for mandates, my respects, but the slightest to the devil himself. I'd chuck without mercy every red tape paper, but this. And then ends, as you noted, on this bit of the wide trouser pocket and the notion. And I'd say this is the most precious thing in the poem where it's like, this is my soul. This is a proof of who I am. Duplicate of a precious card. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a citizen of the Soviet Socialist Union. Everything else might be bullshit, but he's saying, well, we did achieve this. And this does mean something. And I know it means something because the way that people react to it. It's wild. It's inspiring. I could see how it can be turned to really nefarious ends as well. It's a nationalism that's sort of like the old French revolutionary nationalism. It's a nationalism that's striving to achieve something beyond nationalism. Mm -hmm. You know, it's trying to say that like, well, actually anybody in the world who's of this class can respect this. And that's because they want to be a part of this too. And maybe they can, but under Stalinism, incidentally, they can't. There's sort of an interpretation among radical lefty Jews, myself included, where we talk about what it means to be a diasporous people. This actually, well, very much gets into what's happening in Palestine right now. Okay, yeah. But this notion of what does it mean to build a nation with no borders? What does it mean to build an identity of full equality that does not simply limit itself within nationalistic borders? And I think that's also something that Mayakovsky is trying to get at here. Now he's doing it in, you know, obviously a very adjacent way. Referring back to the flying proletarian, the ending of the war in that poem is not the crushing of one nation by another. It's that the workers in the enemy nation revolt, rise up, and overthrow their own capitalist class. Yeah. It's the way that the First World War was supposed to end. (laughs) Right. Honestly, the Leninist read was so close to correct. You had it done halfway with the Weimar Republic and then the attempts to establish Soviets in Bavaria and in Hungary and in, I can't even recall the other places where it was attempted, but they all failed basically. And that left Russia and her satellites hanging out to dry. And this is the question that Lenin and Trotsky were trying to deal with all along, which is that it wouldn't work unless you got the whole rest of the continent to fall. It wouldn't work unless you had revolutions everywhere. It's sort of like the further west you get, the less it's happening. You had a serious soldiers mutiny in France, but you never had a workers uprising. Yeah, never never had like Soviets committees. And you never had anything like either of those really in the British Empire, not in England, certainly. You had obviously mobilizations in India. 
And in the U.S., it was very sporadic. You have things like Red Seattle in 1919, where basically for a few weeks, Seattle is entirely under workers' control, but it never spreads. And it needs to if it's going to survive. And the whole American experience was so repressive, repressive in ways that have been really completely memory-hold. When we get to Catherine Ann Porter, when we get to Pale Horse, Pale Rider, that is one thing that she does nail pretty well as a civilian, not feeling like you could even say anything skeptical about the war. I'm going to start by reading the beginning of At the Top of My Voice. Most respected comrades of posterity, rumming among these days petrified crap, exploring the twilight of our times, you possibly will inquire about me too, and possibly your scholars will declare with their erudition overwhelming a swarm of problems once there lived a certain champion of boiled water and inveterate enemy of raw water. Professor, take off your bicycle glasses. I myself will expound those times and myself. I, a latrine cleaner and water carrier by the revolution, mobilized and drafted, went off to the front from the aristocratic gardens of poetry, the capricious wench. She planted a delicious garden, the daughter, cottage, pond, and meadow. Myself, a garden I did plant, myself with water sprinkled it. Some pour their verse with water cans, others spit water from their mouth. The curly max, the clever jacks, but what the hell's it all about? There's no damning all this up beneath the walls of my mandolin. Tratina, tratina, twang. It's no great honor then for my monuments to rise from such roses above the public squares where consumption coughs, where whores, hooligans, and syphilis walk. Adjectprof sticks in my teeth too and i'd rather compose romances for you more profit and more charm but i subdued myself setting my heel on the throat of my own song listen comrades of posterity to the agitator the rabble rouser stifling the torrents of poetry i'll skip the volumes of lyrics as one alive i'll address the living i'll join you in the far communist future i who am Noah Senin, superhero. Thoughts? This is going to be a really self-important, self-indulgent thing to say, but it really does read like he knows the end is near. Oh, he does. He must. Yeah, there's a sense almost that, like, I'll be surprised if I finish this one. Really, so many of the other strands and threads we've talked about, too, we've talked about in previous episodes, kind of come to a head here. I'm sick and tired of Agitprop 2. He's been trying to figure out this tension between being a worker and being a poet and being a good communist. And now he's just saying, screw it. Let me go back to being romantic. again." I'm sick and tired of Agitprop too. It feels like defeat. I don't know if it feels like a defeat. I feel like it's justification. But Rachel, you tell me. He's acknowledging everything. Rummaging among these days, petrified crap. Like, yeah, days are crappy. Mm. You possibly will inquire about me too. Like he's thinking about the future past his demise. That's how yeah. I'm reading that. Yeah, yeah. Possibly your scholars will declare with the erudition overwhelming a swarm of problems. He's acknowledging that life is going to go on without him. Mm-hmm. But readers then may have thought, oh, he's thinking about when he dies when he's like 80. No. Yeah. Anna. 
you know, I'm reading through the notes here and it says, to add context to this, you know, he says that, you know, it's this long poem about the five-year plan. And from himself, he says, you know, I'm a man of decision. I prefer to talk this over with posterity myself rather than wait and see what critics of the future have to say. So maybe what you said, kind of the meshing of all the other things that we have talked about. Yeah. 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 He's always thinking about what the future is going to say about him. And part of that's because he's obviously a narcissist. And part of it's also because he really does believe that the future is going to be a communist utopia. He really does believe he's building that. And so he's curious what people in the future are going to say about people like him. And this is, of course, also filtered through years during which all of his friends have talked shit on him, basically being like, yeah, Mayakovsky used to be a really great poet, but now he's just like tells people to fucking boil their potatoes and shit. You know, everybody disses him for this, but this is his really useful stuff. There was a moment where I felt like I was doing this shit too. I mean, like not obviously on the level that Mayakovsky was, but when I was a union activist at Temple University, and honestly, this was in the same era in which I first got interested in Mayakovsky, where I was like, well, okay, I'm like working within two different bureaucracies and trying to play them off against each other is basically like this weird situation that you're in. If you've actually been like a paid organizer for a union, it's the most bizarre shit in the world. Yeah. And if you're a full-time union organizer, it's even weirder because you work in a union and then, and then you have a union to negotiate with your union too. <laughs> I wasn't quite in that situation because we were still trying to set up the union in the fucking first place. But I wrote a one page sheet and, you know, I had like a pie chart and shit like that. And I can't even remember all that was in it. Some parts of it had been committed out, but the bulk of it, like writing it up and laying it out and like, these are the specific words you're going to have. And this is how to get it to fit on the page. And this is how it's going to pop. That was all me. Like, And I would stand in the middle of the campus by this weird freestanding bell tower out in front of Paley Library. If anybody knows Temple University campus, you'll know where this is. And with a megaphone yelling at people (laughs) and handing out these flyers. I do remember at least one incident in which there were some weird looking dudes who were like, I think clearly clocking who was there at the demonstration. But that's neither here nor there. It's just to say that the struggle is real. But I used to joke with people that this one page that I wrote was the most important thing I'd ever written. And honestly, at that point in my life, it probably was. At that point in my life, this one piece of paper that had the pie chart and some slogan that I didn't really think was all that great, but the meeting had agreed on it. And then a whole bunch of other shit that I had basically written myself because who the fuck else is going to put in the time. And it's not like it was a poem. It's not like it was like a good story. It wasn't anything except for just my best effort to do a really effective messaging campaign about why most of your classes are being taught by adjuncts and adjuncts deserve a union and so on and so forth. Yeah, it's just weird to be in that situation and hear people 75, 100 years ago bitching about like, well, Mayakovsky was a great poet and now he's just writing agitprop. And it's like, well, sometimes that's what you got to do. But here he is trying to justify himself and he is sort of lamenting it and he is saying, I had a beautiful voice and I destroyed it. I destroyed it on purpose. And I think that there is some amount of lament in that. There is something in that that is, I wish I hadn't. It's kind of sad. But there's also some element of like, this is what I did and it was the right choice and I'd do it again. But also, you know, you be the judge of me because you're the historian. 
I'm not exactly an expert in Russian poetry, but I think that what he did was very artful. And I think that what he did was very worthy. And I think that as contradictory and as problematic as moments of it are, like he wouldn't have been him without doing it this way. So I, I feel like, you know, he made the choices that made sense. I completely agree. There's nothing that says agitprop for political art has to be lesser. A matter of fact, at his best, Mayakovsky figured out how to make it some ways greater because it did attempt to rasp at a future that was radically different than what mm-hmm. the times might have otherwise prescribed for people. Was he always successful in doing that? Well, I mean, we can debate about that. What do you guys think about this, Anna, Rachel? It's nothing original, but I really do think, like you said, it's him justifying his works and it's kind of like a goodbye almost. Mm-hmm. He's justifying himself. It's his goodbye. He's tired. He's done. He did what he did and he made his choices and he's justifying it. Now he's saying goodbye. I described it as despair earlier. That might have been incorrect, but there is something very resigned and sad. Tiredness is really noteworthy. And Herbert Marshall notes this as well in his notes. He reproduces the last speech that Mayakovsky gives. He appears publicly at an event honoring his 40 years of poetry or whatever, if I'm remembering that correctly. He reproduces the speech that Mayakovsky gives. And in it, there's this moment where he says basically to the effect of, I've tried and I've tried and I've tried, but I need help. And Marshall links this to a couple of other moments where Mayakovsky is literally giving what we call a cry for help in his poems. And I mean, it's so obvious to us now that like throughout that he's constantly in like in About This, in the backblown flute, in the cloud in pants, he's always right on the verge. Like, am I going to continue living this life or what? But that I need help is not only like I need help personally, but like I can't be the only one doing this poetic work. That moment where he's giving this speech to all these younger poets he says i need help as in like well i guess it means two things it means that he personally needs help and he also means you guys need to help me build something culturally that would be worthy of our future world he is saying that sort of at the end of this prelude to the poem that he never finishes right when i appear before the ccc of the coming bright years by way of my bolshevik party card i'll raise above the heads of a gang of self-seeking Poets and Rogues, all the hundred volumes of my communist committed books. Like, this is what I contributed. The same as with the tax collector. There's always a little bit of that fuck you there. Like, this is what I did. What the fuck did you do? And in that same presentation where he's asking these young poets, like, I need help, I need help. The other thing that he does is he reads a section from this poem. And when they start asking him questions, he's really disappointed and kind of confused that there aren't more people calling him out. There's this bit about Mayakovsky actually like wants to get in a fight with people. It's that old futurist thing, right? And like, I'd really hope that there are some people who are going to have a problem with what I was doing. And you're all here to tell me how great I am. I know something must be wrong. You know, like me, motherfuckers. Yeah, seriously. Let's go. And this is in the point in his career where he's wearing an Argyle sweater vest and he's got kind of longer hair. He's he's looking kind of like an old university professor poet. And he's really sad that it's not like the old days of everybody scrapping over things because the conformity really has taken hold. And I wonder that this is a thought that comes to my mind and it's hard for me to tell whether it's a legitimate thought or whether it's just me remembering things through weird filters of whatever. But I'm reminded of the recording of Nirvana's Unplugged in New York. Oh, God, yeah. 
Yeah, because there are moments in that where I listen to that and I feel like, and I, there's no way of knowing it for sure, but I feel like the audience knows what's going on. I feel like the audience knows that Kurt Cobain is not long for this world and that they want to be as polite and as deferential to him as possible. There and is something like, very autumnal about it. Yeah, there's this like, yeah. really creepy thing where like, everybody wants to laugh at his jokes. There's this sort of very nervous, like, ah, ha, 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 going along with it the whole way. And the fact that they're able to pull off this absolutely incredible performance, at the same time, I think the audience isn't sure that it's going to come off. Like, the audience thinks, like, yeah. is he with it enough to actually do this? He's got laryngitis. He's over several times in the past few months is he going to actually like pull through and deliver a decent performance and then he does and the whole way through everybody's really like on the edge of their fucking seats about whether it's going to happen and they're trying to encourage him by like yeah yeah you are brilliant yeah yeah we will clap yeah yeah we will laugh at your like weird lame jokes jokes yeah it's a really creepy thing and again, it's almost impossible to tell whether that's something that I'm injecting into it because it's impossible for me to not listen to it that way. You know, whether we're projecting that onto Kurt Cobain and Nirvana or not, I mean, well, it's the same thing. Like, it's impossible to not project that yeah. onto these last balls of Mayakovsky. Yeah. There is no doubt about it. Anna. When you talk about it, how can you not see that when he's raising up, you know, all of his work? And then his legacy says, yeah. yeah, his legacy, right? And then how can you not see that when he was supposed to write later sections going back to his earlier style that people supposedly praised and stuff like yeah. that? Well, maybe that's a good way of transitioning to past one o'clock. So like I said, past one o'clock was probably supposed to be part of at the top of my voice. I don't suppose we'll ever necessarily know, but it comes off as a sort of short poem uh, lament, if you will. And this one he quoted in his suicide note, he quoted himself. And I guess that I see what you're saying that maybe in this last poem, he is returning to that romantic style. And it is this lament for love lost. It does feel like he's writing to Lily Brick again. Mm-hmm. Not to sound cheesy, but he speaks of how he's so sick of being the one to do this work and write this poetry and stuff. And then that in his return to this, I would say, you know, more romantic style that I personally don't really like you can see how in that return he's still searching for all the things that you know that we've talked about before this and you know he tried to do it one way and now he's trying to go back to the other way and in that you see him creeping towards the edge because he didn't find it the first time in his relationships or with his dream of what politics should be and so here in his return to me whatever this is cheesy but he's come back around where he's giving it one last go and if he doesn't find it here then where is it because to him maybe he's done everything that he can creatively do at this point yeah then you're gone no i think that actually there's some symmetry here symmetry a lot of the time is boring but i think after three episodes yeah and probably eight hours of tape I think Anna has actually summed it up really well. He is definitely trying to be romantic again. He's trying mm. to remember what made him want to be a poet and therefore probably what also made him want to be a communist too. Yeah. And I think right now he's sort of, again, projecting here, but I think he's trying to realize that the poet came first. Because he brings it back to like the night sky. Like how can you not read 
the Milky Way streams silver through the night. Night wraps the sky in tribute from the stars. How can you not read that as romantic? Yeah. It's sappy as fuck. He gets back to some of those earlier images, the lightning telegrams. I have no cause to wake yeah. or trouble you. He's going back to about that. Mm-hmm. As they say, the incident is closed. Love's boat has smashed against the daily grind. Now you and I are quits. Why bother then to balance mutual sorrows, pains, and hurts? Behold what quiet settles on the world. Night wraps the sky in tributes from the stars. In hours like these, one rises to address the ages, history, and all creation. Yeah, I've been in every meeting and I've tried to project <sighs> Sometimes even a different version of myself I've tried to project, but there's nothing. That is it. There's the whole world. The world could be ours. My favorite Kafka quote, right? There is hope. In fact, hope enough to fill all the world, but not for us. Not for us. Oh, <laughs> oh shit. Uh, that's, it's, it's the same exact sentiment there. There is tons of hope in that. There is tons of optimism. And that's why he's always looking forward to a future. But it's it's not for him. Yeah, he has none of it. I think he's finally accepted. There's a sense yeah. of like acceptance in there. You've been listening to Professor Frank Fucile, research assistants Anna Wendorf and Rachel Homily, and special guest Alexander Billet. The Pointless Century is part of the Modernist Centennial Media Outreach Project, funded in part by the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire Office of Research and Sponsored Programs. Today's episode are Ex Spectator on Fugazi's album The Argument, Ivan Meets G.I. Joe on The Clash's album Sandinista, and Public Witness Program on Fugazi's album In on the Kill Taker. You can support The Pointless Century at patreon.com slash thepointlesscentury. Support levels include Navel Gazer for $1.11 per month, a Shoe Gazer for $4.20 per month, and Void Gazer for $19.17 per month. Make sure to troll us on Twitter at PointlessCent and follow us on Instagram at The Pointless Century. And if you're interested in supporting your favorite anti-fascist cultural studies podcast, click the links in the description for both our Tee Public merch and our previously mentioned Patreon. We'll see you next time with another episode of The Pointless Century.